Ladies and gentlemen, Rob Port here on WDAY. We got a good show coming up for you and a short week. Uh, as for the show today, going to have uh, former Governor Ed Schaefer on. There's been a lot of discussion about economic incentive programs and specifically the um, specifically the, the Renaissance Zone exemption. Uh, that is, there's legislation that started in the House, it passed the House, it's House Bill 1182, it's on the Senate side now, uh, and it would, it would not eliminate, but, but certainly dilute the Renaissance Zone program. That program actually started under former Governor Ed Schaefer, so we're going to have him on the program, we're going to talk about what the original intent of the program was, how it has, how it has performed and what maybe the future ought to be for it. So we'll have that on certainly coming up here at one thirty. Good afternoon, Atil. How are you? Doing pretty good. There's some snow coming your way, I hear. There is. Yeah, we're supposed to get like six to eight inches, I think, starting good gravy. Like this afternoon. Yeah. It's it's crazy to think because you're not honestly all that far away from Fargo and it's like 56 degrees here or something like that. It's, the weather, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's the weather, and I think a lot of it has to do, and I don't know, I'm not a meteorologist. I'm sure maybe smart. I, as an amateur who sometimes sits and watches like the radar patterns, I think the big lake out here, Lake Sakakawea and and the Missouri River impact impact the weather patterns over here to where we get we get weather because I mean, you can almost sort of see like the fronts and stuff react to the bodies of water. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I could be propagating fake news here. <laughs> well, but... there's there's lots of there's lots of nasty weather out in the western part of the state too. There's no travel yeah. advised out in the Williston area, so Yeah. Across the state right now, we are seeing approximately 8,000 different types of weather. It's, it, it, is, it has been, you know, I mean, this morning I, I was getting my daughter off to school and I was taking the garbage out, and it has, like, that ominous look outside, like like the light has that color. Oh, <laughs> sort of like that, that pre-thunderstorm right. look? Yeah, something's coming. Dun, dun, dun. I don't, know if, I don't know if it's like that in other parts of the world, but here in North Dakota, it's like the weather likes to give you, like, it's like in the movie where they're playing like the ominous tones in the background and you you know the monster's popping out of the closet at some point. So that's what we got going on out here out west. Um, we got a short week this week. Yes, uh, we do. I'm I, through Wednesday. Thursday, we're actually going to have some hockey on the program. Woo, go Spuds. The, yep, the Spuds are in the uh, state tournament, so that will uh, that'll be broadcasting. Actually, I believe starting at, at 1 o'clock right here on this show. So. Yep. Uh, we will be preempted by that on Thursday, and then Friday, uh, L- former Lieutenant Governor Drew Wrigley is actually going to be sitting in for me because I am going to be attending. Uh, my daughter is cheering for the Minot High boys basketball team who are in the state tournament. So, oh, your daughter's a, a boys basketball cheerleader. She is. Uh, I was a uh, boys basketball cheerleader in high school. She does. Yeah, she does uh, football and basketball. Uh, so, I didn't do football. It was too cold to stand outside for yeah. football games. Basketball One, uh, cheerleading, you get to be inside. This year she did, last year she did band and cheerleading. And so for some of the games, she was having to like run back and forth between the band and cheering. Like they'd be out marching on the field. Yeah. And she'd be the only, she'd be out, the, out there in her cheer uniform. She only did the one this year though. Oh goodness. But we're going, yeah, we're going to that uh, Friday. So then, and then we'll be back Monday. So that's the schedule for this week. Just keeping everybody up to date. Woo. 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329, email talk at WDAY.com. I wanted to talk a little bit, you, you know, until we, we have talked a lot on this program about the political tone in this country, uh, which 
I obviously pro- President Donald Trump contributes contributes to in a not positive way regularly. Um, and then on on the other side, though, we we also have these troubling acts of violence. We saw them on election night. We saw them on inauguration day. We have seen them on college campuses across the country where the left responds with violence and and disruption to conservative speakers. And it's I mean it's it's worrying. And I'm not I'm not sitting here saying that that the right doesn't at times go overboard that there isn't violence sometimes on the political right. What I'm saying is is that right now at this moment in time in our country there is a problem on the left and the epicenter is this is the nation's college campuses and an incident last week at Middlebury College proves the point. Um there's a libertarian sociologist by the name of Charles Murray, uh, and if you don't know about him, he's been a controversial figure for, for decades, wrote a, a book called The Bell Curve, uh, suggesting that, that poverty a lot of times was caused by uh, a, a lack of intelligence that at times can be a hereditary, a genetic thing, uh, and, and, and that is even more common in some races than others. Obviously, very explosive very controversial stuff. His book, The Bell Curve, which was written, I think in the late 1970s. I guess I'm not sure. It's been around for a while. Very, very controversial stuff. He was invited to speak by a politically conservative group at this college. And the way they set it up is he was going to speak, and then afterwards there was going to be a debate between himself and a liberal professor uh, who is a critic of his, they were going to have a sort of debate, a discussion, and she was going to ask him some tough questions about his work. So in other words, it was designed to be a very well-rounded event, right? You're going to get a Dr. Murray's outlook and, and his, because he, he just recently wrote a book, and I don't even know what the name of that book is. Um, but anyway, that, that was the event. They ended up not being able to hold the event itself because protesters showed up and yelled and screamed and everything. And then after the event... Uh, both Dr. Murray and the professor, uh, whose name is Allison Stanger, were surrounded by protesters. Uh, they were physically assaulted. She ended up in a neck brace over it. And, and what's interesting to me is, is how often this is happening on, on campuses that are supposed to be, if, if nowhere else in our society, the places where you, you can go to express a point of view. Now, I'm not defending Murray. I, I don't know that I'm familiar enough with his work. I'm, I'm familiar with how sort of infamous it is, but I'm not familiar enough with his research or anything to really draw a conclusion one way or another as to whether or not he's he's right. I certainly haven't read any of his, of his books. But to me, that doesn't matter. I mean, he could be the grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. The proper response to him is not violence and disruption. It is peaceful counter demonstrations and robust rebuttals uh, you know so, so this is happening and, and what drama and the reason why i'm talking about it today there was an article in the atlantic uh, by peter beinert and he describes himself as a liberal and he rightly identifies the problem going on in college campuses he, he says that there is a problem um we have a, a a problem with with the left on college campuses not being willing to allow speech that they disagree with but but what interested me about this and this is the point that i want to make because none of this is really all that 
groundbreaking or newsy to, to our audience. But the point I wanted to make is, is in Mr. Beinert's column, he, he has this aside. He has this, this whole paragraph where he sort of talks about, he makes it very clear that he doesn't, he doesn't agree with the right. I'm going to quote him. But if conservative students cannot invite speakers who hold what I and many other liberals consider reprehensible views, then they cannot invite many of the most prominent conservative thinkers and Republican politicians in the United States today. Like many liberals, I consider it, I consider it bigoted to oppose gay marriage. I consider it bigoted to support voting restrictions that disproportionately impact African Americans and Latinos. I consider it bigoted to deny trans students the right to use bathrooms of their choice. I consider it bigoted to claim that Islam is inherently more violent than Judaism or Christianity. I consider it unconscionable to oppose government action against climate change. Yet on the American right, these views are all mainstream. If conservative students can't bring Charles Murray to Middlebury, how can they bring Ted Cruz, Newt Gingrich, or Clarence Thomas? And what interested me about those comments is, a lot of the reason why the left feels justified in not allowing conservatives to speak, and literally, and, and I have all this linked, and I wrote about it at sayanythingblog.com today. You can check it out. But they, the protesters literally wrote a letter in which they said that, that Dr. Murray's speech was not free speech. And the reason why they arrive at that conclusion is because they consider it bigotry. They consider it hate speech. And, and so, therefore, it's speech that doesn't have First Amendment protections. And, and I think that is so central to what is going on with the left today. They feel justified in violence. They feel justified in disruption because they have convinced themselves that they are fighting evil. They have convinced themselves that they are fighting evil, that, 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 that if you're not a liberal, that if you don't conform to liberal orthodoxy to, to, a, to a majority degree, then you're a bigot. Then you're evil. And it's okay to shout down evil, bigoted people. It's okay maybe even to rough them up a little bit. I, 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 think, I think that is the natural progression of thought we have on the left these days. And it's a little scary. Love to hear what you think, though. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. Or, hey, tweet me, too, at Rob Port. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Rapport sitting in. They're not sitting in. God. Wow. Wow. I haven't done that in a while. It's been a while. It just goes to prove what I got ruts carved into my brain. It's like muscle memory. Yeah. I've done a lot of guest hosting over the years. I don't do it so much anymore because I got my own show. But anyway, 701-293-9000, You want to join the program, email talk at WDAY.com. On Twitter, uh, Dave says, uh, intolerance exists on both sides, and it's what's wrong with government today. And, and I don't disagree with that. I, I, I don't. My, my point is not that 
you know, the, the right has a lock on the moral high ground when it comes to this stuff because they don't. And and also it's problematic to talk in, in sweeping terms like the left and the right. You know, I, I guess I'm using those terms for, for, for lack of something better. Um, but I do think at this moment in time, there is a problem in particular on the left with intolerance on on college campuses i i think the epicenter is college campuses and i think you're starting to see it creep out off the campus to where we see you know the sort of violence we saw on election day we saw violence on inauguration day we saw violence uh, over the weekend at at pro-trump rallies in minnesota in california there is there is a feeling there is a there is a political movement that is mostly on the left these days that feels justified in in using violence and using disruption to fight to 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 dissent against the right or or, or to fight the, I, I don't know I don't know the right words to use but they feel justified in it and I think that's a problem I think that's worthy of, of calling out I mean this this program I, I think is an example I am a conservative person person conservatively libertarian i suppose maybe you'd want to say certainly right of center natil is a left of center person we regularly engage in discussions on this show we routinely disagree with one another and yet we are able to carry on knowing that neither of us are are evil that neither of us are coming from a place of ill intent we're not racists. We're not bigots. We're just, at least I don't think you think I'm a racist. Do you think I'm a racist, Natil? No. Yeah. <laughs> see? So, and I don't think, I, you know, we're just two people that see the world differently. And what we ought to strive for is is public policy, which allows people like Natil and myself to both live our lives the way we want to live them to the greatest degree possible. Um, You know, that's, it, it's, it's, it's that we've got to cohabitate. And, and I... It, it, it really scares me because when I hear even somebody like Mr. Beinert in the Atlantic article that I was talking about in the last segment, even as he's decrying the the violence and the disruption that's going on aimed at right-of-center speakers on campus, even as he's decrying it, he's simultaneously casting those same people as bigots, making sweeping generalizations about positions on policies ranging from climate change to voter ID, where if you stray from liberal orthodoxy, you're now a bigot, or you're you're the proponent of some unconscionable position. This is what feeds into that, right? I mean, because once you once you dehumanize, I, maybe that's the right word for it. Once you dehumanize a group of people, you say, well, they're they're bigots. They're unconscionable. They're deplorable, to use a term that Hillary Clinton used last year. Once you reach that, well, then it's it's not it's it's a lot easier to get from there to the point where maybe it's okay to shout those people down. Maybe it's even okay to shove them around a little bit to physically intimidate them, because they're just bigots, right? They're just Nazis. They're just racists. And what do we care what happens to Nazis and bigots and racists? 
701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. Uh, let's see, John, you're up. Well, I thought I'd save your program today and uh, call in. You know, if, if, if I hear one more conservative voice on the radio crying and complaining about, boy, we can't even go, we can't even go out in public. I can't even tell anybody I voted for Donald Trump because I'll get beat up. He got 80% of the vote in North Dakota. The whining is in unbelievable. Well, we didn't. He didn't you know, get. He got sixty-four percent. Never of update. I was severely wounded in the war on Christmas. My sensibilities have been assaulted by Bill O'Reilly and the war on Christmas. If I'm talking to someone who's obviously a Muslim, I say, "Happy holidays." If I'm talking to somebody that speaks right. to the Norwegian well, I, brogue, listen, I, I don't. Merry I, I, Christmas. You're, it you're, is not you're, a burden. It is not a burden. Do you not? Do you not crap. see the problem? I'm surprised you didn't John, come up with well, a John. flag amendment problem today. John, hold Good on. Lord. Do you not? Do you not see where people are are being shouted down on college campuses? I mean, irrespective of all the silliness that may go on on the right, do you condone people being assaulted because they're conservatives I, on me. campus? Do you think I? If a guy starts takes his lighter out to burn a flag in front of me. I'll analyze the situation. I'm 68 years old, so I have my limitations. Okay, I don't. I, I don't know. Smack anybody around that did that in front of me. Okay. When you're well, what confronted about... by a, I have, but I have never been assaulted by someone saying that I'm not sufficiently sensitive. This is all crap. You understand that? It's not. It's not I'm crap. Sure this is. This is. This is what's actually happening on college campuses today. Uh, we, saw, we saw, we saw, we saw, we saw, we saw leftist protesters attack pro-Trump rallies this weekend across the nation. Well, sure, you can go to you can go to a Trump rally and get punched for being black. But does that, well, that mean all uh, Trump supporters are going to punch the first black guy? They all, hey, no. all I'm all I'm saying, no. I, I don't, I don't They're know. Not, I, show me, show me where railing and carrying on about how this is just because it's actually problem. happening, John. It's really happening. People are actual yeah. conservative speakers have consistently for years now been shouted down on college campuses. That is something that is happening. It's widespread. It's well documented. And you well, don't get to make to excuses and sweep it. And said, I'd like you don't get to you. just sweep By it way, under the rug, John. You don't to, get to just sweep it under to. the rug because it doesn't fit your narrative. Thanks for the call. We got to move on. Governor Ed Schaefer coming up next. We're going to talk about economic development programs next on the Rob Report. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report, WDAY, 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com, or tweet me at Rob Port. The state legislature is having a, a pretty robust debate about economic incentives, and it actually started back in the 2015 session. Uh, that legislature passed... Um, basically a, a, a study, they, they tasked an interim committee with studying uh, the economic incentive programs and, and 
I, I, I think even supporters of, of that sort of policy will admit that the um, the committee found some fat that could be chopped. I mean, they, they had some economic development programs in, in law that had that hadn't been used or hadn't been used in years uh, that there wasn't accurate reporting on. So there's been a lot of good work, I, I think, that's been done on this front. That being said, there are some pretty sharp fault lines, even among Republicans, over how these pro some of these the more popular programs work and, and whether or not they ought to still be in place or, or in place as they are today. Uh, House Bill 1182 is a is a bill which relating to Renaissance Zone income tax credits. Uh, basically, it, it, it waters down the program. It passed pretty narrowly in the state house 48 41 vote uh it's it's been it's already had a committee hearing back on march 1st uh in the state senate uh and you know the debate continues on it i i don't know what the future of this bill is probably going to be in the senate i guess we'll see or if maybe it's going to get amendment i amended i don't know but i wanted to bring on former governor ed schaefer today to, to sort of talk about the history of of the renaissance zone programs because cer- certainly in fargo specifically i i think a lot of people credit and and probably rightfully so the resurgence of downtown fargo to the renaissance zone program and this program got its start during uh, governor schaefer's administration and i wanted to talk with him about that ed welcome to the program and uh, and, and tell us a little bit about how this whole ball got rolling well it's pretty good morning rob or good afternoon it's good to be with you again hello to your listeners it's always great to be on your show thank you for the opportunity Certainly. Um, you, you know, the Renaissance Zone was a pretty interesting um, hatching, if that's the right terminology, in the legislature. As you mentioned, you know, there has been a lot of study about it looking. And interestingly enough, the, um, the uh, Republican majority leader in the House at the time um, was, you know, was working on this. I don't know if they, you know, worked with the legislative council or you know, with some of the organizations that all legislators belong to, et cetera. But John Dorsell came one time into the governor's office and said, hey, you know, I think this can be good for North Dakota. It would really help Fargo. It's a good deal. My constituents would like it, et cetera. And we talked a little bit about it, and I wasn't super keen on it, I have to say. I was kind of like, mm, you know, I don't know. There were some elements of it, uh, including, the, you know, the tax incentives that I wasn't so – uh, so thrilled about. But um, in the end, as we talked it through, I said I would support it. I said, if you get it on my desk, I'll sign it. So we went through the session. We did some work on it, some changes that were made. It kind of, it kind of took on a good life. People liked the opportunity, and communities weighed in and said, yeah, we can use this. And it will incentivize uh, uh, reconstruction of downtowns and, and older buildings and, you know, give opportunities there. Uh, so, you know, not only, not only for commercial value, but also for residential value. And as it unfolded, I said, ah, it's starting to be too expensive. And, of course, these are the days where we didn't have any money, you know, and we we're starting to be uh, it's too expensive. And, you know, some of the issues there um, uh, I'm not super – Great on, and I and I don't know if it can work. I, you know, I think maybe in the major cities in North Dakota, you might have some opportunity, but it certainly isn't going to work in small communities across the state. And so it got down to one of those things where I was worried about it. But I had given John Dorso my word that I would support it. He got it passed. He got it on the desk, so I signed it. 
um, as it started to get put in place, I saw the advantages of it. I said, it's working. Uh, you know, we're getting some good investments in, in um, Fargo. And, you know, it was starting to come alive in Bismarck, Grand Forks, uh, identified a Renaissance zone. <clears throat> did Minot. And so we were going, okay, well, you know, now, now it looks like uh, what John Dorso's vision was here, that this is going to start to happen. So, uh, so um, uh, you know, coming out of the box, I went, yeah, okay. You know, it's, uh, it went to the system. It was generated. It got on my desk. I signed it. It's into law, and it looks like communities are taking advantage of it and creating economic opportunities in their local communities. Do you feel so – because obviously that, 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 all, that all happened a couple of decades ago now. And after, yeah, I think we, I'm not even, I'm, I think I was still in, in elementary school when you, when you guys passed that. So, <laughs> right. so the, um, so that happened all those years ago and, and we're now here in 2017 and we're having a debate about this and the legislature wants to water it down some. What do you think of that effort? Well, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure. I think it'd be a mistake to water it down. I think we've shown that it works. Uh, there could be some fine-tuning, Rob, that, that um, if you look at, say, let's just use Fargo as an example. It's a mature program in Fargo. Uh, they've got the Renaissance Zone things defined. And, in fact, what has happened is since the law has been put in place, uh, the legislature has tweaked it a couple of times, and they've changed the rules and how you can define the Renaissance Zone and the boundaries. And, you know, it's become more advantageous, et cetera. And I think I think it's it's focused on our major communities. And to me, if if we're going to tie into the governor's initiatives and where he wants to go with economic development and improving the economy in North Dakota, it's got to be something that is broader based and works in uh, our smaller populated communities around the state. Uh, I think uh, the first thing I would do is I'd go back and look at the original legislation because it's, it's been expanded at least twice since we put it in place. And, and um, you know, I'd want to make sure that, that what the original vision and thought was was still there and that it wasn't expanded beyond the ability of all communities in North Dakota to use it. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY. Dot com. So what's different between the original program as you passed it versus what we have today on the books of 2017? I think basically what's changed is the size of the Renaissance Zone and the ability to change the borders. You know, originally we said, okay, here's the downtown area or, or you know, the play school. Or, I mean, wherever you want to put it, here is an area that you define is the Renaissance Zone. And that was, you know, X number of blocks or X number of square feet, whatever it was. I mean, it was a certain location. And that's what you committed to, and that's where you're going to build and put your tax incentives in place, and that's where you want to do it. Over time, we've allowed them to change those borders so you can go in and you can commit to a renaissance zone, get all the tax breaks, get the buildings going, get, you know, people moving in and and taking advantage of of these programs. Um, And then, by the way, oh, you can change it. You can go change the borders. So you start all over again in a different part of town or an adjacent part of town. And I'm not sure that's what we were, you know, all looking for. And in doing that, of course, you 
you use the money available, the appropriated dollars that go into the tax breaks for income tax for individuals who invest in these type of properties, um, in North Dakota income, by the way, um, then, you know, then you're using up the money and all the big projects. And I'm afraid that some of the smaller communities get blocked out of using the program. And um, so change, being able to change the definition or the legal boundaries of your Renaissance zone, I think, expanded the program beyond its original intent. So you would, if, if, if you were governor today, would, would you say, hey, let's just go back to the, the original bill? I don't know. I would I'd start there. I'd go back to the original bill and say, you know, what do we have? Now, the, the problem you have is we've already expanded it. So, so the money appropriated, and I think that's what the legislature is trying to do. They're trying to say, well, you've got the money appropriated uh, in the form of tax breaks. I mean, you know, you don't have actual cash going into the deal, but, you know, it's just part of balancing the budget. And you already have those dollars going into these broader areas of Renaissance zones than we originally intended. You can't take those away. You can't pull them back, but you can say, okay, are we going to continue to support development in those broader zones or are we going to say let's take our money and figure out how to incentivize development building repopulation of centers in the rugby's and carrington's and bellfields you know of north dakota um let's that's that's where you need the work Let's let's zoom out a little bit because obviously the the debate over the, the Renaissance Zone has been part of a larger debate over economic incentive policies in general, which includes things like TIF districts and 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 the like. And certainly, in Fargo, City Commissioner Tony Gehrig has been an outspoken uh, opponent of these policies. Uh, in 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 Bismarck, you know, Commissioner uh, Steve Marquardt. Uh, up here in Minot, we have members of the city commissioner. Miranda uh, Schuler uh, is is somebody who has been critical of them. Do, do you, as, as a larger, I mean, understanding the Renaissance Zone as a larger piece of that that policy question, a lot of people are saying, why not just keep taxes low across the board and just have an overall, you know, light regulatory environment, low taxes, and just let the chips fall where they may? Why do we need these special programs? Well, if you, if you, for instance, would eliminate the corporate income tax, you know, or reduce property taxes uh, locally or, you know, whatever the case may be, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, if we, could, if we could eliminate taxes in North Dakota, lower taxes in North Dakota, so that everybody, you know, would, would um, bring dollars in to make these investments – I agree. But the thing, the thing is with that we have to remember is most people look at taxes and tax breaks as revenue, Rob. You know, most people say, okay, that's revenue, and that's how we're you know, going to raise revenue or spend revenue. Or like, the, the reality is taxes are behavior. It's how people behave. And if we want people to invest in businesses, invest in old buildings, invest in, in residences in certain areas of towns, we give tax breaks. So if we want people to build new houses, we say we'll give you a, you know, a moratorium on taxes for two years for a new house to build because we want to build a new house. So it's behavior that we're trying to, to describe here. And if we can incentivize people to invest in North Dakota by having no corporate income taxes or no property taxes or whatever the case may be, absolutely. In the scenario we have today, offering 
tax breaks for specific behavior of investing in certain places in our communities, which we do all the time with local, you know, with local tax incentives, with broad-based state tax incentives, those kinds of things. We've shown that the behavior is people will invest. And so, you know, I support it. I think it's great. I certainly, if I were sitting in the governor's chair, would look at all tax incentives and the way we're doing it. And could we eliminate taxes and get that same result? I'd be all for it. One uh, last question. Do you do you buy into this idea that because we give away so many, and I say give away, because we grant these tax exemptions, that that puts upward pressure on other taxes? For instance, if we give a property tax abatement, that that puts upward pressure on the overall tax rates because we're constantly abating or, or, or giving abatements to these to these specific projects? It doesn't if they work right. And two things have to happen for them to work right. One, they have to be equally applied across the board. You can't, you know, pick and choose. You have to equally apply them. Um, and, and if you equally apply them by, you know, the investment dollar, not by who it is, et cetera, then you've created economic activity, which increases revenue from valuations, from the taxes that are existing, et cetera. The second piece, I think, that, you know, that becomes important in this is, you know, you have to, uh, you have to look at uh, the, the dollars that you're spending. I'm trying to figure out a way to explain it here, Rob, but you know, you have you have to say um, if if we're if we are going to uh, offer these incentives, um, they um, have to be temporary incentives that gain the economic activity, so that you increase all ac- economic activity. And yeah. the valuations go up. What happens, the second piece of this is, if the economic activity goes up, you can't spend that money commensurately. You can't say, gee, our, you know, our economic activity went up, our revenues went up by 25%. We're going to increase our government expenditures by 25%. The theory is you, you, know, you increase the economic capacity of the community so that you don't have the pressure on raising taxes in other areas to pay for it. Those are the two Got pieces that, that I think sense. are very important. That makes sense. Well, we went over, uh, Ed, so we got to go. Limited amount of time. We've got to take one of those uh, revenue center timeouts to uh, make some money and keep, <laughs> keep us bet. hosts uh, living in the lifestyle we've become accustomed to. Ed, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Good to be with you. Former Governor Ed Shaver, we'll wrap the show up right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report. Went a little long with the uh, governor. I don't know what we're going to have on the show tomorrow. I think I'm going to talk about this call. Uh, Senator Heidi Heitkamp's sister had a letter to the editor of the Grand Forks Herald, uh, you know, talking about the budget situation and basically saying we should use North Dakota's legacy fund dollars. And I just checked with the uh, uh, the treasurer's office this morning, $3.8 billion in the legacy fund. Uh, legislators can spend the interest on that money now. 
Uh, they could spend up to 15% of the principal with the two-thirds majority vote in each house of the legislature. Um, she said basically we should use that to offset cuts to higher education. And I think that's a terrible idea. High, the higher ed budget boomed during the oil boom years like the rest of the state budget. I don't think we should try to sustain boom-era spending post-oil boom by dipping into our savings accounts. That sounds like really bad policy. I think the universities are just going to have to take a haircut. And, and by the way, enrollment hasn't been growing that much at the universities. What have they been spending the money on? We'll talk about that tomorrow. I'm going to stick around for the Jay Thomas Show. That's coming up next. Remember, you can catch me here 1 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday or 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at sayanythingblog.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again.